good morning again. Now I'm going to get you to stand. And uh, there is a, we're on our ninth installment of People in Crisis. And uh, we're going to look at that this morning. I, um, now I must tell you, um, and you didn't know this, of course, but um, the plan was um, to finish up in a week or so this series and go into a series on the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, but what I've decided to do is uh, we're going to continue this series, actually, because um, uh, it just feels right to do that, and we're going to finish that into um, Labor Day, and then, of course, we will uh, move on then. Uh, but um, Pastor Derek is going to be uh, preaching next Sunday morning, and we're looking forward to that. I haven't heard from him in a long time, and so I'm looking really looking forward to that. And uh, so uh, this is installment number nine, and um, this is a text that is sort of tucked away in the Bible. I have never, ever heard a sermon preached on it. And um, uh, you may or may not have as well, but it's the story of the widow of Nain. And some of you are saying, okay, what's that? Well, we're going to get to it. Uh, It's in the book of uh, the gospel of uh, Luke, and it's chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. And uh, I'm going to read it for you, and this is what it says in a moment. This is what it says. Soon afterward, uh, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And then he came up, and he touched the bier. And the bearer stood still, and he said to him, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. I wonder what he said. Wouldn't you love to have a little, just a little bit more, you know? He didn't have one of these dear, you know, near-death experience. He had the full experience. I wonder what he said when he spoke. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. People in crisis, and I think our widow of Nain today qualifies, don't you? Let's pray together. Father, again, you are so gracious so generous. You are so extravagant that you demonstrated it in Jesus Christ in spectacular form. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who takes everything that you have accomplished in Jesus and makes it possible and applicable, available in each and every one of our lives in this room today and those that are watching online. 
It's available. It's applicable. It's possible. And so we ask now that that same precious Holy Spirit would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, hearts to understand, minds to comprehend. And when we leave this place or when we shut off our devices today and we go out into our lives, particularly with those we love the most and who love us the most, who live in our homes, but also in our neighborhoods and where we get our services, may we truly by the power of the Spirit, live out what it means to be disciples who honor your name, the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we ask these mercies and your grace. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, let's begin this morning uh, with a story. Arthur Fry. Arthur Fry worked for the 3M company for about 44 years, and he developed between 40 and 50 products that the company sold, this corporate giant whose annual income is more than $15 billion worldwide annually. He invented a product that has become a gold mine for the 3M company. He stumbled upon it actually when a, a fellow scientist and him were trying to develop super glue. We know it as crazy glue. And they couldn't quite get it to work. And so Fry was actually sitting in church during a dull sermon, not like this one. It's too early to see, right? Yeah, to know. During the dull sermon, he was mulling over the problem of how to keep the pages marked in his choir book. And then it hit him. What if he could use the adhesive that didn't stick very well on a piece of paper as a removable bookmark? And out of it, posted notes was born. And of course, it has been a gold mine. Now, that story is not unlike our story in this sense that one thing is happening, but something else is also taking place. What things look like currently in our lives is not necessarily where or how they are going to end. What seems obvious in the beginning, what seems obvious now is not anything like how things will turn out. So let's get to our text. And a town called Nain. Now, to call it a town is to, is to really stretch things. It's more like a little village that's sort of off the main highway which pilgrims traveled going from Galilee to Jerusalem and Jerusalem back to Galilee. It was discovered actually in 1838 as being the biblical town of name by the name of a man, Edward Robinson and Eli Smith. Matter of fact, three decades later, Mark Twain, the famous writer, visited Nain and he discovered that it was still at that time only consisted of a few villagers. 
Insignificant, small, not that much of note, but it makes it into Luke's Gospels, one of the short stories that Luke gives us. But it also reminds us of a couple of other very familiar and similar stories. Nain was located on the same hill as a little town called Shunem. Nain is on the north side of the hill, and Shunem is on the south side of the hill. Both communities located on the same hill. One on the north, one on the south. And 2 Kings chapter 4 verses 18 to 37 gives us the connection between Nain and Shunem. There is a very familiar and similar story that takes place there with the prophet Elisha, the raising of the only son of the Shunammite woman. And then in 1 Kings, the book before, chapter 17, verses 17 to 24, we have another story that comes from Elisha's mentor, Elijah. Elijah is the one who brought back from the dead the only, the one only son of the widow who lived in the town of Zarephath. Now, what I find particularly interesting in the story of Elijah is that the almost identical wording is used in the Old Testament about Elijah as it is used in the New Testament in our text about Jesus. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 23, it says this, And Elijah took the child and delivered him to his mother. Our text tells us that Jesus gave him back to his mother. And then there's this. All three women, the Shunammite, the widow of Zarephath, and our person in crisis, our widow of Nain. They have only son, one only son, and their sons die. And all three sons are brought back to life, one by Elisha, one by Elijah, one by Jesus. And all three are given back to their mothers. But they're all widows as well. And what I find interesting is that they're all three are widows, but they're all unnamed. And we have no identity of who these women are. They're all noted and identified from where they belong. Shunem, Zarephath, and Nain. Now, our person in crisis is identified, as I said, a widow in name. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean that she and the other widows are nameless, that they are unnamed? It means this. One thing it means is that she is us and we are her. Why? Why is it that she is us and we are her? Because death can be experienced in many different ways. 
Death can be more than just a body on a bier or in a coffin or in a casket. Any of us can be experiencing a kind of death today. Any of us can be experiencing death while everyone that we love is still living. Because death comes in many different forms and in many different ways. It can be the death of a relationship. It can be the death of a marriage. It can be the death of a job. It can be the death of a dream. And the list goes on. Now, Nain was originally called Naima. The Finnish would love that name. It was actually shortened by the Greeks to Nain. And Naima or Nain means pleasant or beauty. But Nain is anything but pleasant for our person in crisis until Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, Nain becomes a place of meeting. Three simultaneous meetings take place at the town gate or at city hall. In the Bible, of course, the city gate is city hall. But three meetings simultaneous take place at the city gate or town hall in Nain. First of all, two crowds meet there. Now, Luke tells us in verse 11 that there was a great crowd that went along with Jesus and a considerable crowd from the town was with the widow, our person in crisis. One crowd is coming and the other crowd is going. One crowd was headed into the community and the other crowd is headed out to the cemetery. The crowd following Jesus are ecstatic. They are filled with life and happiness. The other crowd that is following our person in crisis is overwhelmed with grief and death. And what a contrast between the two crowds. And so, as we watch this meeting take place, this interaction... This connection between the two crowds, there is a question that we must ask. And the question is this Is the meeting of the two crowds a happenstance or the hand of God? Is it a divine appointment or is it coincidence? Is it accidental or is it arranged? Now, in the Greek language, there are two concepts for time. First of all, there is chronos, and chronos is where we get our word chronological. It means linear time, like it is right now, quarter to 11, and in 15 minutes is going to be 11 o'clock. And I know that I'm the only one watching the clock. Kairos roughly means the right moment. Being in the right place at the right time. Now, there are times in all of our lives 
when what happens circumstantially looks awfully accidental, as if it is a coincidence. And there are other times with when what happens circumstantially in our lives appears to have a higher purpose, that there is a higher power that is work that is at work within them. Do you think it was happenstance or the hand of God when Ruth's dad, my wife's father, who is my late father-in-law, who was stranded in downtown Jakarta, Indonesia, the capital city of Indonesia. He is stranded. Now, this is before cell phones. And all along the street in Jakarta, there are these little shops, dozens of them, of places where you can make phone calls and you can receive phone calls. But he's stranded in this huge city in Jakarta, in Indonesia. And he happened to be standing beside the door of one of these shops. And the phone rings. And on the other end of the phone is a lady by the name of Marilyn Bush. She is the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada missionary in that particular area at that particular time. And she calls and asks for Russ Hazard. Is Russ Hazard there? That's my father, late father-in-law's name. And my father-in-law hears his name through the phone as he's listening by the door. And he says, hey, that's me. And so he gets on the phone and he says to Marilyn, Marilyn, how did you know to call me here? And she said, I didn't. I just happened to have this number right here in front of me. Happenstance or the hand of God? Let me give you one more about my friend George. George is going on a missions trip to the West Indies, to an island in the West Indies, and the group, the mission group actually arrives late at Toronto Airport, and he gets the last boarding ticket, and the whole group is scattered throughout the whole plane. And George, my friend, happens to sit next to a lady. And when the flight was underway, George found out that she is on vacation. And for the next two weeks, she's headed down there to her parents' condo to get some rest. And through the course of the conversation, my friend George begins to talk to her about the Lord. On the return trip home, two weeks later, she was on the same flight, and George and her sat together again. Now, there are 280 people on this aircraft. And George sits next to her, and he says a prayer. He says, Lord, if you want me to speak to her, then you have to get her to start the conversation. And for the next four hours of that flight, she asked questions, and at the end of the flight, they exchanged contact information like they were in an accident. Happenstance or the hand of God? The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, carefully note the coincidence, 
as the skeptics call them. But we call them providences of Scripture. Now, whether or not the meeting of the two crowds in our text was a happenstance or the hand of God, we're not told. But we are left to decide. But if Jesus had arrived there a little bit later or had reached that spot at a different time, the story would have been altered, but then again, it wouldn't have mattered because Jesus could have called the young man out of the grave like he did with Lazarus. There are times that we attribute happenings in our lives to coincidence when in reality they are arranged by design, by the providence of God. But it was the right moment and the right place when two, two only sons met. The one only son was dead but is destined to live. The other only son was alive but he is destined to die. And there are three terrible truths that has implications for our widow, our person in conflict. The first terrible truth is that her only son is dead. And the death of the only son constitutes a crisis, which brings us to the second terrible truth is that it, in that culture it meant possible ruin for this widow. Without a son, without a husband, she was on her own. And the ancient world was known for being very inhospitable to single again women. There was no such thing as pension or a social safety net. There was a huge crowd with her, but there was no guarantee that they were going to take care of her. Maybe they would have, maybe they wouldn't have. We don't know. But it is a well-known fact in the ancient world that widows were desperately forgotten and poor. Matter of fact, the first Christians in the ancient church, they actually established an office called the office of, a, of the widow. Like you would have a youth pastor or a children's ministry or a seniors pastor. They had an office of the widow and this person who occupied that pastoral position was responsible for the care of widows and orphans. But this widow's future hope is lying in a coffin, is on a bier, and is dead. And the third terrible truth is this, that she has been here before. She is a widow. And as someone put it, she has stood on death's crumbling ledge before consuming her husband. The death of her one only son had great implications in her life. But the other only son, who was alive but was destined to die, <clears throat> had even greater implications 
in our widow's life, in our person in crisis life. Four truths that offset the first three. Verse 13 says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now, in the Greek Bible, in the Greek language, in the New Testament, there is no stronger word for compassion than when it is used in the context of Jesus. Matter of fact, it has the idea, it literally means that the bowels yearn. In that time, the bowels were considered to be the seat of love and pity. I'm sure that all of us in the room, or most of us anyway, and those of us that are watching online this morning, you have been in situations where the pity that you have felt and the compassion that you have felt for somebody that you could feel it in the pit of your stomach, right? That's the idea here that's being implied. But notice something further about Jesus' compassion. That Jesus went out of his way to get there. He went there and he wasn't even requested. Did you know that Nain is 39 kilometers, 24 miles from Capernaum? It would have taken Jesus a full day to walk there. And on top of that, Jesus is at the peak of his popularity. Why would he spend time in this backwater village? The home of a dozen or a dozen and a half families why would Jesus take the time to go out of his way over this one widow there was no request there was no expectation and Jesus performs this miracle without any trace of faith to draw it out of him it came as a result of his compassion I mean, is that not God's way? For God didn't wait until we reached out or we cried out to him before he showed his love. Matter of fact, Peter says this. He says, he, has, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times. Here it is. Here it is. Look at the last five words, four words, five words. For the sake of you, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, you, and you. For the sake, for you, for us, for me. And if that doesn't help us, Ephesians says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He showed his compassion before we ever asked him. John tells us these words, you and I, we love because he first loved us. Jesus went out of his way is the story of the cross. And Jesus will go out of his way every time 
for you and I, not just for the cross, but today. In our circumstance, in our situation, in our, our need. You know why? Because he's our friend. And when Jesus has compassion on us, we are in great hope. There are few feelings more precious, more deep, few emotions, more powerful than compassion. And so this widow, our person in crisis son, would have been dead and buried and she forgotten and poor. But Jesus had compassion on her. And here's the fourth truth. The compassion of Jesus was expressed in the sparing of an only son. But the compassion of God the Father was expressed in not sparing his only son. I think that bears repeating, don't you? The compassion of Jesus was expressed in the sparing of an only son, but the compassion of God the Father was expressed in not sparing his only son. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? That's a great question. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I said three simultaneous meetings. Two crowds met. Two sons met. Two only sons met. And two enemies met. A meeting of life and death. And Jesus stops the procession of death in our text. To stop the progression of death. Verse 14 says, Then he came up and he touched the bier and the bearer stood still. That is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He stopped the progression of death. Paul says to us, the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus came to stop the triumphant march of death in that little village in Nain, in Luke's gospel, and on the cross. But notice what Jesus says when he stops the beer and the bearers of the beer stop. Notice what he says, the majestic and authoritative eye of Jesus. He says, I say to you, arise. Pastor Kevin, a couple of weeks ago, looked at this from Mark's gospel, and it's the story of Jairus or Jairus, whichever way you want to pronounce it. And the Bible tells us in verse 41, and taking her by the hand, this 12-year-old girl who was dead, taking her by the hand says, Talitha, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, I, I, I say to you, 
arise. When the majestic and the authoritative eye of Jesus speaks, the region of the dead must obey. And it must loosen his icy fingers and let its prey go. And verse 15 says, And the dead man sat up and began to speak. There's no hesitation. Jesus spoke and immediately his word is obeyed. But there's also this. In Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel, this is the first time in this text, in our story, is the first time that Jesus is referred to as Lord. Verse 13 says, and when the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, saw her, when the Lord saw her, you see, Jesus is not only the Lord of life, but he's also the Lord of death. And we are told in John's gospel that an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The voice in our text that raised a young boy, a young man, will one day sound like a trumpet into the chambers of the dead. And the graves of the nations will be opened and the dead will rise at his command. And the dead man, our text says, sat up and began to speak. And death is swallowed up in victory and the whole scene changes. The great exchange. Sorrow is turned to joy and sadness into singing and mourning into dancing. And the gray overcast sky turns to the brilliant sunshine and resilient color. What a scene it must have been. The reunion of an only son and his widowed mother. What a scene. What a picture it must have been when a funeral procession is turned into a victory parade. And if our text teaches us anything, it teaches us these things. That Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the, and the life. Number two, it teaches that Jesus is Lord and has authority over life and over death. And if Jesus is the resurrection and the life and he is Lord over life and death, then he is also Lord over every and anything else. In Matthew's gospel, the disciples said, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. In Mark chapter 1, verse 27, 
The question is asked, what is this? He commands even the evil spirits and they obey him. And in Luke 7, they ask again, who is this that who even forgives sin? So I ask us this morning, I ask you this morning, I ask myself this morning, I ask those watching online this morning, so what is it that Jesus needs to be the Lord over in our lives? What is it that we need to surrender to Jesus' Lordship? It can be someone, it can be something. It can be a person, it can be a relationship, it can be something that we have that has actually become an idol in our lives, or it can be something that has us, and we are addicted. What is it in our lives that needs to be surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, because if he is the resurrection and the life, and death and life must obey him, then everything else must as well. So who is it? And what is it that you and I need to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? I know what it is in my life, and it's none of your business. And you know what it is in your life. And it's none of my business. And so if our text teaches us anything, it teaches us that. But I want to finish with this. Because I think it's important. Our text also teaches us a practical side about this. Of possessing our own possessions. Now, that statement comes to us from the book of Obadiah. There's only one chapter in Obadiah, so it's Obadiah chapter 117, where it says, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Now, does that not sound like a strange statement? Possessing our own possessions. Now, it was brought to my attention when I was reading an essay by the name, by an author by the name of Frank Borum. But possessing our possessions is another way of saying wanting what we have. Now, I have conducted enough funerals in my life to know that there are too many people that have too many regrets for not having spent enough time with the people who they love the most and who love them the most. Who have regrets that they didn't show their love in a greater way, in a better way, in a fuller way, in a more consistent way. Now, we have no idea if this widow had any of those regrets. I mean, it's totally, it's total speculation. But I want you to imagine with me this morning that she has regret. Just imagine with me. Work your imagination with me for Imagine that her only son dies and she has regret 
because she hasn't told him that she loved him enough or she didn't believe in him enough or she didn't she was too hard on him or whatever the case may be you know what I'm talking about and our text says this and the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him back to his mother you get the line Jesus gave him back to his mother. The same thing that Elijah does with the son, the only son of the widow of Zarephath. He gives the son back to his mother. Now, can you imagine also with me at that moment, what an opportunity she has. She gets to start again. Her son is returned to her. Now she can actually undo all of her regrets and she can start over and she has an amazing second chance of course this is total speculation on our parts but I think we all know that we all possess more than we enjoy we have many things that we have, but we do not enjoy them. We do not take advantage of them. Matter of fact, think about it. We have, in the English language, a possessive pronoun to express the things that belong to us. That's my vehicle. This is our home. These are my books, that applies to me. This is my musical instrument, and the list goes on. But we also have possessive pronouns, not for things, but to express our connection and our affection and our love and our relationship to the people who we love the most and who love us the most. This is my spouse. This is my wife. This is my husband. This is my girlfriend. This is my boyfriend. This is my mother. This is my father. This, this is my son. This is my daughter. This is my friend. But the question remains, am I, are we possessing our own possessions? You see, possessing our own possessions matters much more in the second category than in the first category because everything in the first category is going to dust. Now put your seatbelt on. We are at times too taken with what we do not have, or worse, what we do not have that other people do have. And we fail to appreciate what we do have, or more importantly, who we have in our lives. So our widow, our person in crisis, and her son's death and return, and the prospect of our eventual death, teaches us this. Part of the problem is that we realize it too late, that we have not possessed what we possess. It's the same principle of Jesus giving the boy, 
the man, the only son, back to our widow. There's only one way to possess our own possessions of a home. is to live in it. There's only one way to possess our possessions of a book. We have to read it. There's only one way that we can possess the possessions of a musical instrument is that we have to play it. And there's only one way to possess our own possessions, possessions of a person is we have to love them. We have to show them with generosity and extravagance and graciousness and tenderness. Now, it is unlikely that any of us in the room, any of us watching online, that we are ever going to experience the miracle and the gift that our person in crisis received. But we get a second chance. And our second chance is now. We get a chance now. Another chance to go out and possess our own possessions. I mean, really, think about it. I went to bed last night and I thought to myself, I said actually to Ruth, we were laying in bed and I said, do you know, I get to get up tomorrow and go to work. Do you know what's good about that? Well, there's lots of things. But I say, you know what's good about that is I have a job. Now, I want you to know there are better congregations, I suppose. And I suspect for you there are better pastors and definitely better preachers, that's for sure. But we get to be together. You see, we have this crazy idea that... we can find somebody better than the one we're living with. That it's going to be better with that person or this person. No, no, it's just going to be different, but different problems. So right now, this morning, you and I get a second chance. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to you, here, I'm returning this person back to you. I'm returning this relationship back to you. I'm returning this over to you a second time so you can have a second chance at possessing your own possessions. I want us to close our eyes. Now, with that said, and if you can close your eyes online, that would be great as well. Now, remember, I want to marry two things here. Remember, I talked about this is the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus is referred to as Lord. So maybe in order to own our own possessions, to actually want what we currently have, or more importantly, who we have currently in our lives, is maybe we need to make Jesus Lord. We need to surrender it to his lordship. So maybe we need to surrender a bad attitude 
toward our spouse, toward our children, toward our parents, toward our boss, toward our sisters or brothers. Maybe that needs to be surrendered. Maybe we need to surrender the problems that we have created in our relationship. Maybe we need to surrender someone. Maybe it's a child, maybe it's an adult child who has a long time ago decided that they are going to live differently than the values that they were raised with and you're still living. We're still living with the consequence of that decision. Maybe we just need to surrender that person to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I've done that a hundred times. We'll do it a hundred and one times. There's no statute of limitations on surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But you know what I'm talking about, don't you? We know what I'm talking about. Right now, right in this room, right online, right now, the Holy Spirit has put his finger right on what it is or who it is. And the question is, will we surrender it? And will we take the second chance that's been given to us this morning? And begin again to want who we have and want what we have. Father, this is the moment when your spirit connects with our spirit and deep calls to deep like the roar of the water brooks, the psalmist says. Deep. The deep things of the Spirit are calling to the deep things of humanity. The deep things in us are calling to the deep things in the Spirit of God. And right now, every single one of us know who it is that you're talking about to us, that we need to surrender. Every one of us knows that you are giving us a second chance to possess our possessions of the people you have given to us, who love us the most and whom we're supposed to love the most. You know, Lord, we know exactly what it is that we have put so much stock in and we have become idols, have become idols in our lives and has taken place of your Lordship that needs to be surrendered this morning. And maybe, maybe there's hmm, something that has us that has become an addiction in our lives. And we need to surrender it to the Lordship of Jesus. And we may say again, I've done this dozens of times. We'll do it a dozen and a half times more. Because we're getting a second chance this morning. 
Our second chance is now. There doesn't have to be a death and a funeral. We can have a second chance right now. So Father, in the name of Jesus, everyone that is listening online, everyone in this room, Holy Spirit of God, do what only you can do in our hearts and in our lives. Father, where there needs to be repentance, let repentance come. Where there needs to be surrender, let surrender come. And where there needs to be decision and choice to possess our own possessions, that it would come right now in this moment and in this time. And we give praise to your name because you are our God. Nobody loves us like you do. Nobody cares for me like Jesus. Nobody. So we give you praise and we give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to open your eyes. If you're online and you had a chance to close your eyes, would you open them, please? Now, this is not something that needs to be resolved at an altar. This is something that needs to be resolved in our lives. And so one of the reasons why I didn't call the musicians this morning is because I wanted us to leave the room and turn off our device and let the Spirit of God plant this deep in our hearts. And may He do that for Christ's sake. Amen. God bless you.